0: This is Dave Moss of the Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Early on in my fundraising career, I was involved with a program called the Seed Foundation. And we raised a lot of money there for from a lot of uh, very important folks. I remember I once cast a check, personal check from Eric Schmidt of Google, uh, and also Donald Rumsfeld was a donor. He would send checks in the mail, and so I've seen Donald Rumsfeld's signature on a personal check. Um... The, uh, lots of other folks, too. and At one point, we were trying to fundraise from Oprah Winfrey. And uh, I remember the name Karen Yanis from those days, because that was the person in charge of Opus Philanthropy back then. Uh, about 10 years later, I was at the Nexus U.S. Summit, and someone introduced me to Karen Yanis, And I asked her to sit down, because uh, I had my microphones there. And what follows is the conversation we had. I hope you enjoy it. for time. Never I know you're pressed for time, so, uh, so here we are at Nexus. It's, we seem to be uh, in between sessions, uh, and I was able to grab Karen Janis, uh, and uh, I'll tell uh, I'll talk a little bit about it. But your name first came on my radar over ten years ago. I was the development associate at a place called the Seed Foundation, uh, and. Um, Let's start uh, with what you're doing now. What is your name?
1: Well, first of all, Karen Yates. I'm the principal <laughs> of COND Consulting. I'm based in Chicago, but I work all over the country and actually all over the world. Um, I met Raj Vinakota when I was working with Oprah Winfrey. I was the president I was the executive director of the Oprah Winfrey Foundations and Oprah's Angel Network for nine years. And, wow. Um, and Raj had just started the Seed Foundation and he was on an Oprah show, and we
0: that's right. He was on Oprah's show. I, I think forgot it, about that. Raj
1: won the um, Use Your Life Award.
0: Yes, he did. It's yes. One hundred
1: so thousand dollars. Raj
0: probably, is an evaluator for the unfunded list today.
1: It was probably in two thousand five, before two thousand five. Uh, yes. One hundred thousand dollars, and he went on to do great things. And it's wonderful to see him working with the Aspen Institute. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of what I know about fundraising, uh, I learned from him. Um, so tell me a little bit about the nine years you spent working for Oprah. What sort of philanthropy does she do?
1: So there, when I was with Oprah, we had the Angel Network, and I helped create a back office operation for the Angel Network, and her viewers were so enthusiastic about the Angel Network that they um, that they would send funding in every week when the Use Your Life Award aired. Mm-hmm. So the, the team that um, worked with me... ...helped identify areas that could really use that money, often where the stories were hard to tell on television. um, And we had a major response to um, Hurricane Katrina and other disasters using the public funds. Uh Oprah brings so much integrity to everything she does, and that included the philanthropy. So what what Uh we did, we did did really well and above board, and Uh all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed.
0: So you were able to uh, to raise money from some of the show's viewers.
1: So shows viewers sent money in every every week when the uh, when the segment aired, or whenever there was a disaster. And she talked about philanthropy. Mm-hmm. She would get letters that said, "You know, I found five dollars under my car in the Walmart parking lot, and I knew it was God telling me send that money to Oprah." I mean, very heartwarming, wonderful. I'm sure. Uh, and... felt like she was going to use it well so we had a we had a a lot of responsibility Um, and i think that any any philanthropist is is um managing the public trust you know is responsible for the public trust because philanthropic dollars don't belong to anyone
0: once you take that tax donation that is public money. federal government owns that and we just get to steward it uh, so, but did she? So you were able to raise a lot of money, which is great. Um, celebrities have an incredible power, especially a celebrity. I mean, there's celebrities and then there's Oprah, uh, and so that's awesome. But was she also contributing her own money? She is quite wealthy herself. She, she
1: had a, um, a private, a private foundation, and did you that c- we, we worked with also everything. These were did, she did with a high level of integrity.
0: So was her own giving different separate than the, the than yes. the stuff that with it, the from the?
1: Yeah, many many high net worth people have multiple vehicles for.
0: Giving. Mm-hmm. Um, yes.
1: You know, often there are, are various um, various vehicles, like donor advised funds, trusts, um, private foundations. People write checks, but they also use their intellectual capital. They use their convening power. They use assets that are at their fingertips that they have that other people don't necessarily have. And Oprah had this wonderful platform, but many donors have great platforms. It's so much of philanthropy is about identifying what your platform is and how you're going to use it as effectively as possible.
0: My grandmother, who ran the Moss Foundation uh, before me, uh, it was called something else then, because her name is not Moss. Uh, but she used to say that we like to use all of our currencies. Uh, and that's something that really that really stuck with me. Uh, we can make very very small grants. Uh, we are not <laughs> Uh but we uh, I can almost always uh, connect you with somebody that can help you more than I can. Uh, and so I like to think about my network capital, my Rolodex. Another thing Grandma used to say is there's always more money in the Rolodex than in the bank account, and that is true for everybody. So for as much money as Oprah has, right, she can make two phone calls and find people with more money, right?
1: So I think any. Uh, yeah. Funders can do that, Um, and and you're right about the the Rolodex, Well, I haven't actually thought about it like that. It's about leveraging big ideas, and often people can, people who have small amounts of capital to invest, when they invest intellectual capital, social capital, um, when they really focus, that small amount of money can do as much as a lot of money, Mm -hmm. and I I think that we need to be aware of how, how much each of us can use our own platforms for social change.
0: So it was a long time ago, and I may be fuzzy on some of the details. If Raj is listening, he'll email me and he'll correct it because he'll remember everything that happened. But we would have weekly development meetings, and I remember one time when we were talking about uh, uh, the Oprah's Foundation, and we were considering, like, well, what should we, what should we ask for, right? And what, and I think what we eventually asked for was actually not money at all. I think we said, like, can we have an hour of Oprah's time this year? And we'll you know we'll come up with a couple of lists and just have you make a a couple phone calls i don't remember exactly how that happened but i do remember those conversations um was that was that something that she would do for cherry say i'll make a couple calls for you or i'll do this for you or do that
1: i won't speak specifically about about yes of course i I can um you know i can say that that's what donors do and when, when philanthropy is done really well that's how it works it's about leveraging what you have. Philanthropy doesn't mean I'm going to give you money from my 501c3 private foundation. It means the love of humanity. And thinking about it from that perspective, there's so many ways to enter into it. There's this great saying by Larry Kushner, um, entrances to holiness are everywhere. And I, think that I, I really love that. It's about being able to see opportunities and use the assets that you have to affect change through those opportunities.
0: Uh, that's amazing. And so uh, at the end of your uh, nine years uh, with Oprah, uh, what did you do after that?
1: I moved to um, I, I moved to help run a, a private foundation owned by a, a large Chicago-based family. And I worked with them, helping them think about integration of generations and, and building out their philanthropy. And I loved every moment of
0: it. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, well over a decade of... You've been really at—I mean—major, major philanthropy. I mean, this is big-time stuff. This is not the Moss Family Foundation, right? For all of the great impact we've had over there, you uh, are on a much other level. And I wonder—and uh, uh, I assume that you probably also do your own personal giving, or uh, or maybe are involved in, in in things that are at a smaller scale. And I wa- do you think about big philanthropy differently than small philanthropy?
1: that's such a good question. Thank Um, you. I I don't. (laughs) I I don't think about it differently, you know, Hmm. but what um, we were just in a session where they asked what the one word that you would have that would describe your passion. And while I didn't actually stay there, the word that I came up with was generosity. I'm really passionate about generosity. Not my own, but helping other people find theirs. So huh. I do a lot of coaching. we' well, you're in the right business. Members.
0: <laughs>
1: um, I, I do a lot of coaching. I help foundations think about all of their assets and creating asset maps that show where they're where their their assets, their financial and their non-financial assets are, and what they've been given to over a period of years. And I help families take family values and contextualize them across generations, so that just because because a traditionalist, the founder of a um, a family wealth, had been giving to a hospital for many years, doesn't mean that the third generation Mm should continue to give to that hospital, or wants to. But if you dig a little bit start scratching the surface, you see that there, that there was a value in that gift. It might be that someone was given some kind of care, maybe it was neonatal care. Um, and once you're able to extract that and then contextualize it, Well, what does that mean in 2018? What does it mean to work on neonatal care in 2018? Is it a capital gift or is it some kind of systemic change? Can we start thinking about how pregnant women take care of themselves? Can we start thinking about um, providing providing systemic change in communities that don't have access to um, to prenatal health care? That's just one example. There are a lot of ways to look at contextualizing values. Mm-hmm. But what, what I sit on the. On the um, Board of Visitors at Indiana University's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy.
0: Sure, yeah, and they big deal. Did
1: a great biennial study with U.S. Trust every year that really talks about how next generation. I think members, I've read it. Second and third generation members are very interested in the values that their parents and their grandparents had, just not actualizing mm-hmm. them the same. I mean,
0: that's I, as a third. Uh, I'm the fourth generation to run my family philanthropy, which means I sometimes give money away that was originally earned. In as it could have been as early as the 1920s, by a man who I've never met, who died 50 years before I was born, uh, and you're absolutely. And, the, and I, it's important to me uh, to solve. I think the most important thing to me is to solve problems in the world today, right? And many of those problems didn't exist for him.
1: So what were what so were his I try values to values f- that you have incorporated?
0: Well, uh, in particular, and this is uh, all sides of my family. Uh, My mother is Jewish, my father is not, Uh, but both sides of the family-valued education probably really, really top of the list. Um, My uh, my father was the first in his family to go to college, uh, and then he drastically exceeded that uh, went on to get a master's degree and then a PhD and then a second PhD so just go just being the first in his family to go to college was not important enough for him uh, I like my, my my parents have three PhDs is one of my favorite sentences to say <laughs> uh, my mother is at uh, Duke University uh, and before that, they, the two of them taught at Colby together. Uh, and clearly, all the generations before them instilled education in them. They committed their lives to being a teacher. I actually tried to be a teacher myself, that was my first job. Uh, I learned later at Seed that nine out of ten first year teachers don't become second year teachers, which is uh, and I think we can all figure out why it's a difficult job and it's underpaid. So but what a
1: great platform for you and the work that you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. So you're still teaching in some ways. You're just not teaching in public education. Well,
0: the the nonprofit I founded, the Unfunded List, uh, our mission is to educate the public about philanthropy, right? Which it, so that we are, uh, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. I think a lot of the people who send me unfunded proposals wouldn't have this opportunity to have this conversation with you about philanthropy, and so this is the chance for them to. Hopefully, they'll listen in and they'll learn as well. Uh, That's why we call it Open, that's why we call the podcast Open Door philanthropy we're opening doors Uh, oftentimes uh, the the reality of fundraising is closed doors quite the opposite so what i'd like to ask you is how did you when uh uh, how did you prefer to be approached as a as a donor advisor how did like did you only identify organizations and then fund them or Or did
1: did we ask for proposals did we request proposals or did we accept proposals over the transom
0: if there was someone out there doing something that they that and they identified you as a target right and i don't remember how seed got on your radar originally but like oh because Raj got invited on uh, of um, course yes um, so did you is that how you like to be you, would, you had people on the show first and then
1: you know so so in my career I've worked both ways mm-hmm. um, I, what I what I'm helping people do now is identify the issue that they really care about or the issues that they really care about in that frame of contextualized values um if you can get there, then you can figure out what the process is, and the more clarity you have for, for grant seekers, the better it is for them because nobody wants to waste their time going to someone who's not going to fund them. Um, many funders are interested in particular organizations, and I often try and help them think a little bit beyond the organization, that it's not about... That organization—it's about what problem does that organization approach—and thinking more systemically about problem solving than keeping an organization alive. Now that's why there are some great funders of, of strong organizations, and they need that. They need general operating funding in order to survive. So there's a there's a balance. But when families are working together, my goal is to get them to come up with what it is, what problems there are in the world that they want to solve, that they're passionate about, that. Are meaningful to them, and then look at the universe of options, mm-hmm. and think. Then, then drill down and think about well, what's the geography, right? What's um, what's the exact issue that they're interested in? And we do a lot of education with donors to help them understand. And often, the the nonprofit organizations are are partners in that. So I think it's the responsibility of nonprofits to educate donors and to. Do their homework and find out who's funding what, and it's the responsibility mm-hmm. of donors to be really clear about what
0: they're funding. Uh, absolutely. Uh, very well said. Uh, I imagine that you have other sessions and other things uh, to attend to, uh, but um, uh, just one, uh, a couple more uh, closing questions. Uh, the, the, um, the firm you're. Uh, this is fun, by the way. Oh, of course, thank you. It's fun for me, too. Uh, the first, uh, the, the your firm now, Uh, You're doing the same thing? You're uh, advising donors and that sort of thing?
1: I'm Crowland Consulting, um, and I am advising high net worth families um, and some institutions on philanthropy Mm -hmm. and helping them think through how to give really well and how to be accountable and generous at the same time.
0: Have you ever had a job other than donor advisor?
1: Yes. What, did you do something before? <laughs> yes. My degree is in broadcast journalism. Okay, um,
0: so were you a, a journalist? I
1: I, um, I I I worked in, I worked with major magazines in New York for um, for a long time.
0: Magazines. Time magazine I'm a so. millennial, so. Yeah,
1: I know it sounds like it was <laughs> in the 90s. Yeah. No,
0: I'm actually I, I'm one of the older millennials. I remember magazines. You remember
1: magazine?
0: <laughs> I still get The Atlantic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also helped start a school foundation prior to to coming into this, so I understood what it was to do grant making. You did some... And I've sat on boards. I sat on the board of a mental health organization. Now, as I mentioned, the um, Indian University's Lilly School of Family Philanthropy. I'm I'm on the board of the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Mm. And this one is my favorite, the Poetry Foundation in Chicago. The
0: Poetry Foundation?
1: So the Poetry Foundation started as a, a very small foundation, Publishing poetry magazine, they were the first to publish T.S. Eliot, and um, the first to publish Pound. Not as bad. I've read repound, him. Right? Um, and then in the early two thousands, they um, they got a bequest. They didn't even know who the bequest was from at first because the editors had been communicating with um, with this poet as they did with anybody who submitted poetry. They they never published any of her poetry. And she was sending her poetry in under her married name, not her maiden name. And her maiden name was Ruth Lilly. So when she died, she left the Poetry Foundation two hundred million dollars.
0: Wow! Um,
1: and it was a fascinating thing to watch it being stewarded. That's a lot of money for poetry. And, po- and the Poetry Foundation is bringing the, the, the written and the spoken word into communities that really, that really benefit from arts all over the well, country, absolutely. and in fact, all over the world.
0: I think there are a lot of people that think poetry is nice is a, or you know, a thing, right? I don't really like it or whatever, and they don't necessarily think of it as a particularly important thing. I think I, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, I, write, uh, I write poems myself, uh, I learned long ago that they are not any good. Uh, um, but that's not. Do you have deb-
1: two hundred million dollars? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, not quite. Um, uh, the, uh, but I don't think you necessarily write poems because other you're you're writing them for other people. I enjoy writing them for my own my own thing. I read them to myself. Um, I do know. Uh, I remember I went to uh, writing camp uh, when I was a, a kid, and there was a. Uh, I forget. I think I just went because I. It was you know, summer, and you, this is, the only way you can get out of the house is sleepover camp, and my parents were professors, so I had to do academic sleepover camp. I couldn't do the sports ones like everybody else. So I went to Bates. They were at Colby, and I went to uh, Bates for two weeks for writing camp, and that's where I started a life of writing poems. Again, terrible poems. Uh, but it's just it's good to spend some time thinking differently than you normally think right and having the freedom to write a bad poem right or, or paint a bad painting or, 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 or it doesn't all have to be high art right i think all of us should be doing something of that sort and i feel really bad for people who don't have any sort of artistic outlet so that's awesome
1: poetry brings communities together and um and the poetry foundation has several readings of, a couple of readings a week where they bring in um, often communities of color, Latino communities, immigrant communities, Mm. uh, Middle Eastern communities to share the poems and the richness of the language of those communities. Mm -hmm. And it's a really powerful thing to see people brought together by images that are comfortable for them and familiar, and sometimes images that are disruptive. Uh, And I think that the spoken word Mm. and the written word can do a lot for us as we think about moving into a new era.
0: Who is your favorite poet? Oh,
1: I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> Did
0: you? Uh, um, <laughs> You're yeah, a mind reader over here. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I, I actually read a, a, a poem at a, at a board meeting not too long ago by Derek Walcott, which is called Love After Love, and it's one of my favorite poems. And it's really about self-love.
0: Hmm. Uh, what was it uh, what is it called again?
1: Love After Love by Derek Walcott. Uh, awesome.
0: I will, I'll have to check that out. Uh, I... Um, I asked. I might as well. And I like. I really like Billy Collins for uh, folks who are around today. Uh, but I think probably ultimately, and this is a big cliche, but like I'm a big Walden fan. <laughs> the uh, You're from New England. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. It's kind of. And I've been to Walden a few times. I've walked all the way around the uh, the pond while reading from Walden Pond. And my my father's a U.S. history professor, uh, and uh, I am actually named after. Uh, Thoreau uh, my name's David and a lot of people don't know that that his name was David as well <laughs> but he didn't like being called David and so I he to- he Thoreau. told people I'm glad I'm not Henry <laughs> um, but uh, he's a big big fan of my dad's um, and I, you know and he was kind of a some I think there might be poems that he wrote but uh, other things as well I actually really like his, I'm from Maine uh, and he I forget which book that is that Thoreau wrote but he went like he basically walked up to Maine and then walked around for a while and wrote down all the plants and stuff that he found as a little boy in Maine, I love that book. I used to go out and try to find those plants. And, um, uh, that was awesome. And so uh, it's uh, really so, been a so pleasure having you here. What does
1: the Moss Foundation give to you? and how do you make decisions about giving grants?
0: Uh, at the moment, we fund the nonprofit that I founded, The Unfunded List. Uh, I worked uh, at uh, nonprofits uh, consistently before this, uh, and we would... Um, Often, uh, and I tried this with varying levels of success. Uh, fund the place where I worked. Um, sometimes I would work there. I would realize, like, this is something we need money for, and we're never going to get it. Right. Uh, and uh, and on a f- couple of times I made restricted grants for like to improve things that made my job easier.
1: Okay, so we to stop you right now.
0: You probably don't want to put that on. The, on the we, uh, we, I, I edit these. <laughs> Good,
1: because that's conflict of interest. Well, no,
0: we've never been be. we've never been an actual five hundred one c three. This is oh. just a checking account. I can do whatever I want with the money. <laughs> no, but it was even if, even if it's not a legal conflict, you're right. It was it was awkward, right? We were you know we would we we made uh, gifts to seed while I was there, and I think Raj was very Raj is a very very good fundraiser, uh, and he was a, he was able to. And I kind of got spoiled working for him because he, he was very professional. I still worked for him. It was very clear, right? But I was still like I still felt stewarded well as a donor at the same time. Like he was just very good at doing that. And some of my later supervisors, uh, nothing ever like blew up or anything. But it was a, it created for an awkward dynamic. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and so and I was uh, I was on the board of something called the Slingshot
1: Fund. Oh, I know Slingshot well. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, I've been. Sharna, invo- Sharna I was in, oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Sharna, I was a member of Grand Street, which is a network of young Jews involved in philanthropy, uh, and that's how I found out about Slingshot in the really early days. I think I did the first. Cycle, or maybe I was joined for the second cycle, possibly. And then I was on the board of Slingshot for six years, I think. I left when I turned 30. We had a board meeting at Google headquarters in San Francisco, I made this big speech about how the board of Slingshot should only be people in their 20s. There aren't enough opportunities for leadership for young Jews in their 20s that are genuine, that actually involve the ability to give real grants to projects. I think we should, I am stepping down and I fancy, I was like thinking, I was picturing myself as like the general Cincinnatus, right? Or George Washington retiring after two terms. That's how I, was. that's how the, and I, I, my ego has not subsided since. Um, All of the board members who were there for that meeting are still on the board. None of them have stepped down, and everybody is old there, and...
1: Uh, <laughs> Leslie Mata. Uh
0: No, I, I, there might be some new board members. In fact, uh, Lana uh, Fern, née uh just joined our board, the Unfunded List. Uh, unfunded List is somewhat similar. A lot of the stuff I learned uh, in that board experience there, um, particularly the power of the... Uh, what I call the power of the Honorable Mention, right? Uh, so, like, the groups in the guide... Most of them didn't get grants from us, but all of them got extra funding from being in the guy, right? And so what I, I just I originally wanted to make sure I gave feedback to unfunded proposals. That's the main thing we do here. It's the mo- probably what we spend most. I think Margaret would agree. It's what we spend most of our time on. Uh, the administrative lift is um, is heavy, but but worth it. Uh, the feedback we deliver is very useful for these folks. Um, but um, uh, you know beyond that, um, uh, you know beyond the feedback you know want to be able want to make the program as abundant as possible and so that's why we have uh, the unfunded list as well uh, which increasingly is for uh, when we see a proposal that has improved quite a bit, most of the folks on the list this round have applied to us several times and we were like, well, you're, you're getting much better. This is, this is a much better proposal than the last round. And I think that's the right time to start introducing them to funders and stuff like they, these people have figured this out. Uh, and we've been in, we've had quite a bit of success on that front. Um, some of the groups on our list have, have we've connected them with six figure grants. Uh, we look forward to doing a lot more of that stuff. Uh, and at the end of every, uh, episode. And if you say no, we will just cut this question out. Uh, about uh, twice a year, I get unfunded proposals from people. We have a large evaluation committee that I assign to and I ask them to send me their feedback. Uh, if I get some proposals in this round that I think you might be helpful to, would you mind if I send some of them over to you?
1: Um, not at all. If, no. I can, if I can help, if I've got the time, I'd be more than happy to. One of the things I really love doing, aside from, from things like this, is coaching young professionals. And it's, um, I, I think it's so important, especially, especially for emerging women in philanthropy, mm. to help them understand what the landscape looks like. And then help emerging men understand what it means to be a female ally um, and, and work together. So one of the projects that I'm working on currently that's a really exciting project is um, a website called glassceiling.com. So, glassceiling.com is for women in the workplace, and there are lots of interviews, and I've actually done the interviews, um, with men talking about their experiences of bias in the workplace and how they've felt and how they've come to feel the way they, they do. And then I'm also working on a, um, on a professional development for credit course, a seminar um, in Chicago that takes place on the 23rd of, of February um, on, on ethics, and it provides three credits for lawyers. Um, accountants and for insurance professionals, and it's an original play that's being written about a family um, that has advisors around it and and the kinds of decisions and dilemmas that they have in their lives as they're deciding about philanthropy. Wow. So it's super fun, and um, and there's more of that to come. So if anyone's interested, they can look on Entertain 2, the number 2, Educate, um, dot com entertain to educate I like that that's a good name entertain to educate and glass ceiling is glass ceiling uh,
0: okay we have been speaking for 26 minutes now
1: oh no <laughs> oh,
0: no, <laughs> uh, no I, this yeah. has been this has been thoroughly enjoyed. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed it as well thank I, you for I, I signing I uh, the release yes, I'm, I hope you enjoy the